I don't believe in no one's scenarios. Data, 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 I cannot make bricks without clay. I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another Chitty Scientist radio show. I'm very excited for today's show because we are talking about engineering careers. Engineering careers on today's Cheeky Scientist radio show. I am your host, Isaiah Henkel. What are the top engineering careers for you if you have an engineering PhD or know somebody that does? Uh, make sure that you listen or have them listen to this radio show. We are going to start by talking to a, pan- a panel of engineers from various different backgrounds. Now, maybe you're interested in this. You don't have an engineering PhD. What you should know is that engineering PhDs uh, are, are very specific, very focused on their niche background. If you're a chemical engineer versus a electrical engineer, uh, a civil engineer versus a mechanical engineer. I've heard this argument over and over, most strongly from engineers that, look, I can't get a job the same way that somebody with a chemical engineering background does because I'm a mechanical engineer or vice versa. The truth is you can. Many of today's top companies have engineering teams where they want engineers from four or five different backgrounds on the same team. Regardless of this, we're going to talk about the top engineering careers for each type of background. So no matter what background you have, you can get into the careers we're going to discuss today. The path might be a little different. The skills, the teams, the companies might be a bit different, but we're going to discuss all of this. We're going to start by jumping in with our panel of engineers first, and then we're going to talk to uh, a very special guest uh, who is an engineer. We have an engineer from uh, more of a chemical engineering background. We also have an electrical engineer uh, with more of an electrical and mechanical engineering background who are in different careers and have worked across the board in, in different careers in industry. They are incredible people to learn from. So let's jump in with our panel now. Amy, good to see you on. Hello. Shantanu, how are you? Good to see you on. Hi. Zia, you. hello. Hi, Isaiah. Hey, Paul, how are you doing? Isaiah, doing well. Been a while. Thank you so much. Really appreciate all of you here. Um, Really appreciate all of you being here. Um, I know a couple of you are going to stay with us long term. Uh, we like to do a panel like this because we have a lot of engineering PhDs who, you know, have been where you are, were before, an attendee on a webinar like this, wondering, hey, can is there something that can help me get hired? Will it work for me as an engineering PhD? More specifically, will it work for me because I have a very specific niche background of engineering that makes my situation very unique and impossible. Right, we've. I think we've all been there in one respect or another, thinking that there's something that uh, kept us from getting hired in industry. So I just want to hear your story, your transition story. But start by introducing yourself and the career uh, company position you're currently in, if you would. And Amy, I'll start with you. Hi everyone, Amy Beard here. Um, I'm, my background is in chemical engineering, and uh, I currently have my own consulting company uh, doing. Uh, grant support for science uh, startups. And um, I've got a background as an R&D director. Um, I've worked as a VP of operations and had a few different um, roles over over my career so far. So excited to be here and help support everyone. Thanks, Amy. Please say hello to Amy if you can see and hear her in the chat box. Let us know you can see and hear her. And Shantanu, you're next. Hi, myself, Shantanu. So 
currently I'm working as a principal engineer with a semiconductor company at MNC. And I'm also an R&D engineer. So basically I'm working on design of semiconductor chips. All right, thank you, Shantanu. Please say hello to Shantanu if you would. Zia, your turn. Hi, Isaiah. Hello, everyone. Um, Zia Adam here. I'm a chemical engineer. I finished my PhD in environmental engineering at the University of Akron about five years ago. Um, I worked for many years on the field before my PhD, of course. Um, currently, I'm working with um, a scientific and business consultancy company as a project manager, project architect. Glad to be here. Great. Great to have you with us. Please say hello to Zia in the chat box, if you would. And Paul, thanks for waiting. How are you? Same question to you. All right. Uh, yeah, thanks, Isaiah. Good to see you and good to see everybody else here. Um, yeah, my name is Paul Menarchik. I am a post-market surveillance senior analyst at Johnson & Johnson currently. Uh, my background's in chemical engineering. I actually worked for five years as a quality engineer for a steel company right after undergrad. Then I got my PhD. Then my first job out of um, grad school was at uh, Corning as a process development engineer. And then after a little over a year, I transitioned to, to Johnson & Johnson. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to help anyone any way I can and happy to be here. Thanks, Paul. Please say hello to Paul if you would. Uh, really appreciate all of you being here. And I think uh, I think we have, uh, well, maybe not. I think we have Rubanka here as a attendee. Yes, we do. So I'm going to see if I can get you up to panelist there, Rubanka, and we'll bring you on. Uh, and then in the meantime, I'm just going to go around and ask all of you a, a, a simple question. Our attendees here are looking for a job. They've never transitioned yet. Hey, we got you on, Rebecca. Hello. Uh, why don't we just jump in and have you introduce yourself, Rebecca, and the position and career you're into, please, our company. Certainly. Um, so I'm an electrical engineer. I graduated from Duke a while back. Um, currently, even though my background is electrical engineer, I moved into the field of data science. Currently, I use machine learning techniques um, to help plan clean energy projects in developing economies. So happy to be here. Thank you. Please say hello to Rubenka as well. What an incredible panel. Again, very different backgrounds. Uh, all have transitioned into industry. And that's what I want to hear about next. Quick kind of two-part question for all of you. What were the challenges you had in your job search? And try to speak specifically to that engineering mindset. As much as some of you probably still wouldn't want to admit it, right? You thought, okay, because I'm an engineer, I'm different. I have a specific engineering background, which makes me more different. I don't know if I can do this or I need some sort of special help, whatever. What, what mindset challenges did you have? And then what technical challenges? Resume, LinkedIn, right? The kind of stuff that you, you learn through the cheeky scientist uh, methodologies. Uh, and then how did you get hired afterwards? Uh, so what did you change that ended up getting you uh, your job offer? And Amy, I'll start with you. Thanks, Isaiah. Um, so background-wise, uh, it's, it's, it's a challenge. There's no access to career centers that really can help you. So finding access to people who know what they're talking about um, in terms of helping PhDs. As far as skills, I think all of us are focused on publications and you know certain techniques and things we use in the lab, um, but really identifying what those transferable skills are that employers care about um, was a challenge. And then um, you know, in terms of accessing networks, that's a hard one. Uh, a lot of times you're in a single lab with maybe just a few researchers. Um, just building your network and getting to know people is a, is a huge a huge hurdle for me um, and something that, that Cheeky Scientists helped with a lot. So I think I answered all your questions, Isaiah. 
That's perfect. Thank you so much. Please say thank you to Amy in the chat box. And I think for a lot of you, maybe you're relying on advice of a lifetime academic career counselor has never worked in industry, uh, and certainly for engineering PhDs, uh, that won't be helpful to you transitioning. Um, Amy's going to stay on with us, so we'll have more time to talk with her. Shantanu, same question to you. You know, What were the challenges you had in your job search, both mindset, technical challenges, and how did you overcome them to get hired? Yeah. Uh, so during my PhD, definitely I have learned a lot in terms of technical and other aspects. But thing was that when I decided, okay, I want to transition into industry, so I was not sure like how to present myself or whatever skill I had in a proper way so that I should make myself like very much suitable for the industry. So after I joined the CSA, so I learned like how to polish my skills or like present myself in a proper way so that it can be suitable for the industrial situation. So in that way, like, yeah, definitely I have learned a lot and it has been very much beneficial for my transition. Yeah, and I think for all of you, you're very technically sound, or certainly from an employer's perspective, especially the hiring managers and recruiters without that engineering expertise, they know you either have that technical skill set or you can learn it. But speaking the language of industry, the transferable skills, understanding the project management process even in industry is, is a big gap. Uh, and that's part of what you are trained on in the engineering PhD circle. So please thank Shantanu in the chat box, if you would. Thank you. Great feedback. Zia, same question to you. What are the challenges that you had? And then how did you overcome them to get hired? Um, well, Isaiah, first and foremost, I can say this. Since I was in the academia for such a long time, I've completely forgotten what it was to be on the field, despite working for at least 10 years previously. Um, so it was very, let's say, single-minded, going always on my niche subject, not considering anything outside of the box. Um, of course, the transition was, that's, that was the mindset. So I was always thinking I, I should be in academia for the rest of my life. I was not ever considering the outside world. Apart from that, for the transition, of course, my resume, my LinkedIn profile, these were extremely um, outdated and they were not in line with anything that I was looking for. So when I decided to switch back to industry, I found that I had nothing on hand that would be of interest to, let's say, industry um, hi hiring people. So that was one thing. I think I can also say that um, I had zero network, so that was another thing that I lost on during my uh, academic um, research. So yes. when I just got out into the open and met with you, um, I pretty much had nothing on hand that I could build upon besides my skill set. Of course, that's where we came in, in, into play with resume, the LinkedIn, networking. So yeah, that was the transition um, that I had to go through to get my job right now. Yeah, well said. Thank you, Zia. And I think uh, you brought up something that we didn't really touch on yet, which is your network. Uh, you, again, the technical skill set's important. Learning the transferable skills, how things work in industry are important. But to really learn about those even mid-level, top-level jobs in industry, you have to set up informational interviews. You got to develop a network, ideally of PhDs working, engineering PhDs working in industry. And that's what we've collected for you uh, in the engineering PhD circle. So Zia, thank you. And uh, please thank Z in the chat box. Paul, thanks again for waiting. Same, same question to you, the, the challenges you had and how you overcame them to get hired. Uh, yeah, so I actually, I had the, the background of having gotten a job right out of undergrad. And the way I did that was I just went to a, a couple career fairs on campus and I actually had like on-site interviews lined up before I even left campus. But it was so different as a PhD student when I went to the career fairs, they say that they're targeting bachelor's level candidates. So yeah, that's when I realized like I need a different strategy. So my big challenge was like, 
how to market myself and what jobs to even apply to because I had a bit of a varied background. I was working in the steel industry and quality. And then my research was more computational modeling and like, what do I do? How do I write my resume? Where do I even apply? Do I just go online? So that's when I use some of the cheeky scientist resources and learn that I have to, to build a network and really format my resume and put the target keywords that those employers are looking for. Um, and from there, yeah, things took off uh, a lot quicker. So mm. that's how I resolved the, the majority of the issues, at least. Thanks, Paul. Uh, thanks for being here. Please thank Paul in the chat box. Uh, again, uh, our, most of our panel here, they're just, they're volunteering. They know that you all can get hired and the, the big problem is not, you're not in demand. It's just, you're invisible. You have to shift things, right? You're a, you're a engineering PhD is a very specific process and path, very specific language. How you position yourself in the job market is different than it would have been, you know, right out of uh, getting your bachelor's or, or any other scenario. So great insights, Paul. Thank you. All right, Rubenka, thanks for waiting. Same question to you. What were the challenges you had in your job search and how'd you overcome them to get hired? So I think I resonate with a lot of the points that were brought up already. As an engineer, sometimes you feel siloed, like I focused on so-and-so research topic. And of course, I'm a specialist in that field, but there are other transferable skills. Um, and I think the Cheeky Scientist Associates really do a good job of teaching us, um, you know, to highlight them, how to best present them to your hiring manager. Um, another thing that I will say helped was, well, I got my first job after I joined the Cheeky Scientist Associates and it was a good job, but I think just being part of the community pushed me to find the next step instead of continuing to spend five years at a position. And it was a good fit, but you know, if I can do better, I should certainly push myself to do better. So that's also something that I'm grateful to the community for. Mm. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up career trajectory. It's one of the reasons that we give lifetime access for our programs and for the engineering PhD circles. So, you know, you can get into that first job, but you can leverage it immediately for a better job as well. A lot of our panelists here have experience in multiple careers already. And so you're not just going to get your first job, but your second, your third, your fourth. Uh, traditionally, people will stay in average. There's a lot of data on this. Just like Rubenka said, five years, even up to eight years, if you're in a certain level position that might be considered entry level. What we focus on is getting you into the PhD level roles, the senior engineer roles, or, or similar, depending on the job title or principal or, or you know that higher level category, not working side by side with people with their bachelor's or master's. This is specific for PhDs. So thank you to our panel. Thank you all for coming on. Paul, Shantanu, thanks for coming on. I know you're going to go. I really appreciate your time. Please thank our panel in the chat box if you would. Great insights. All right. So a few of you are staying with us. Excited to have you on. And uh, we just wanted to have a, a kind of a larger group stay on with us today uh, to, to talk about these different career paths. There are many, lots of different options. You heard from a couple of our panelists that they've worked in different roles previously. And uh, from, you know, Rubenka getting into a data scientist job from her electrical engineering background, Amy uh, getting into multiple roles, working as a R&D director, VP of operations, uh, consultant. So what is possible for you? We're gonna we're gonna dive in here um, with the you know the reasons to to leave academia. I think this is important to talk about. Things are really bad now in academia, and I'm not gonna sit here and talk about how bad they are in detail. But I do want all of you to know, you know, we we track a lot of numbers. There's a great article out by the uh, Chronicle of Higher Education that showed the the massive losses in terms of hundreds of thousands of employees from higher education, including tenured professors and postdocs, 
uh, even PhD, you know, who were about to start a program and they shut down uh, admissions. Uh, the, the, the thing to point out here is there was no such drop in 2008 with the Great Recession, right? So these recessions, 2001 was a recession. You know, they never led to these massive cuts in higher education. So what happened with the pandemic is it kind of exposed a house of cards, uh, so to speak, and things are, are particularly bad right now. They're not coming back. So I know a lot of you are thinking, well, if I just kind of wait it out, there's this professor thing, whatever, uh, you, you can't really hold on to that. So I just wanted to ask our panel, you know, what advice would you have for people facing the current situation who might be holding back, taking the reins in their job search? How would you encourage them to become more proactive, Amy? I think the main thing is just realizing uh, there are abundant opportunities out there. Unfortunately, they're not in the academic environment, and that's just a place of competition and, you know, um, competition for resources. So um, leveraging the skills you already have, um, just learning how to present them in a new way and access new networks, uh, you can turn your PhD into a valuable job opportunity. Anything to add, Rubenka or Zia? So I guess okay. I say that, sorry, Zia, go ahead. No, go ahead, no, go ahead, please. Okay, um, so I think the sooner one starts, the easier mm -hmm. it is. To, because, you know, we don't want to wait to build a network just as you're desperate for a job. These things take time. So I would certainly say, mm. get up your mind, um, then please start. It's better to start now than to think about it for a month. Yeah. Yeah. Good points. Uh, Zia, final word. Steph, I'd like to, you know, echo that. I agree. Transition does take some time. It needs patience. Um, apart from that, of course, as a PhD we do have it, one very, I think, one of the most important skills that we can do research and we can think much more broadly rather than only our niche, let's say, subject or topic. But we have the, the, the skill set to think very broadly, to be able to do research, to write, to read, to understand very quickly. So um, definitely these can be used for switching your, your, just say, um, your focus. It doesn't have to be directly what you study. But yes. it can be in, in energy. So what I'm doing right now, I work as a consultant. I'm doing, I'm working with many different engineering companies. They're not directly my PhD or my undergrad, but I'm definitely providing them with insights, helping them and consulting them. So that comes through being able to research and put together your, your findings in a meaningful manner that will um, benefit your, your clients. So thinking broadly and just go out there and run after it. Yeah, and overall, what we're talking about here is just changing that mindset. We're going to show, talk about the different jobs, talk about how engineering teams are structured, you know, all of this uh, very tangible uh, tactics and strategies. But it starts with finding a strong reason why so you stay motivated in your job search and understanding and setting the right expectations. The job searches, and I upload a few resumes, I walk away with a bunch of jobs. As a PhD engineer, you're looked at differently. You have to position yourself differently. You have to go from you know, having tunnel vision and, and listening to academics to asking, what's the language of industry? How are teams structured? What does the project management process look like in industry at this specific company? Uh, you know, what transferable skills? Do you even, have you even written down that you can do research or innovation on your resume? Likely not. You probably think they're too simple of words. Technical literacy, likely not. Uh, we, we've seen lots and, you know, thousands of PhDs who have transitioned with their engineering background. And unfortunately, they, they often only talk about technical skills and the technical skills they learned in academia, which, by the way, 
in industry, are they using uh, more advanced or less advanced instruments and methodologies and reagents for all of you? Well, is it more advanced or less advanced? You can just shout out the answer because it's obvious, right? Nobody wants to shout it out. Rebenka, go ahead. I can tell you're about to say something. I just think it's important for people to know because sometimes we're in academia. We think I'm doing cutting edge stuff with cutting edge instruments. And very often it's like, no, no, robotics are doing that in industry, right? Or there's like way better instruments or reagents. Sorry, go ahead. For data science, I would say industry. So when we're in academia, we want to do something innovative, something new. Maybe if you think of it like that, maybe it's brand new, but with industry, you need to do something that works. In a production environment, if you're on a strict timeline, you have to be comfortable with using new technology you may not have encountered before and run with it. And that's something our PhD teaches us. So I feel like we yes. have skills for it and we don't necessarily need to know that specific tool. It's just the fact that we're equipped to deal with surprises or new technology as we see it. Yeah, that, that's a better, I guess, more all-encompassing word is the is newer technology. Okay, so uh, the we, we really worked hard on this. We interviewed many PhDs from all different types of engineering backgrounds, and we put together this framework uh, with, with three categories, R&D, information and data management, sales, and marketing positions. These are the ones that we are going to go through today. Um, with understanding this framework, I thought it might be helpful because our goal is to move you from thinking about where you are now in academia, where we slice up disciplines into very small niches and we get hyper-focused on that, to industry, where you know you could have an engineer from almost uh, any background and you, the job title is not your specific background, it's just engineer one, right? Or R&D engineer or, or, or senior, it's much more generic. So I wanted to start by talking about these different options just generally, and maybe Amy, I'll start with you and I'll go through everybody uh, as part as, you know, making this decision and how any engineering PhD, right, can, can really find uh, a job in any one of these sectors. You know, I think most of us have probably focused on R&D, second most information data management, very few have focused on some of these uh, applications or sales and marketing positions. But how would you explain this to yourself before you even got your first industry job about the possibilities that are out there and how you should not hold yourself back uh, by any limiting beliefs of your background, et cetera? Yeah, I think like back up what you said, Isaiah, um, I know from for me, I was very focused on the R&D type roles, um, thinking that I would always be doing research and working in a lab, um, but realizing there's so many other capabilities um, and there's so much information that needs to be compiled for for companies to make good decisions. Um, and so that gets into that information and data management uh, kind of role. And the nice thing about all of these, I mean, so when you think about working in a lab, for example, not everyone wants to do that hands-on work all the time um, and be, be in a lab. I mean, right now with COVID, I know a lot of us are jealous of people who can work from home, right? So um, that information and data management uh, can be more flexible career options there if you don't wanna have to work on site. Um, and then sales and marketing, I mean, I think engineers shy away from sales, but if you think about it, there's so much technical equipment out there um, and PhDs can speak that language. So they're best equipped to really help, um, you know, sell and market those products. It's not it's not door-to-door -door sales or calling. It's more like, you know, the engineer that goes out and helps 
um, a, a company set up a new piece of equipment or troubleshoots if they're having issues or helps advise them maybe on the best ways to implement new equipment. And that can be a really rewarding um, area hmm. as an application scientist or engineer. We're going to jump to those topics. We'll go through each of these individually. Rubenka, you, you spent a lot of time uh, in fact, helping us with this framework and, and the different positions possible. Can you talk about some of the options and maybe the way that you would suggest engineering PhDs with different backgrounds thinking about it and maybe touch on a bit like you do in the training program about how these engineering teams are made and they're cross-functional? Sure. Um, so I think my first suggestion would be don't get so hyper-focused on the title itself because, well, let's data scientist is a really, really popular uh, position and so then maybe people just want to focus on the title itself as opposed to saying, well, maybe you have had experience dealing with vendors in your lab before. You are really familiar with the business side of things and you can still leverage your technical skills for that position. Salary and benefits and everything else can be negotiated as you go along, as you start to show value. And CSA, the training modules definitely help you highlight all that. Um, so definitely read the job description specifically for the data science field. I know some companies don't even know what they want. <laughs> the title says something and then the description yes. is something else. So, you know, and sometimes as a PhD, they look to you to bring in that expertise, to tell them like, this is, you know, what is suitable for the type of job you want me to do. So definitely do that. We, most of us who have worked in labs have done cross-disciplinary research. Um, you may have worked with political scientists, you may have worked with economists, and that carries an incredible amount of value. Again, when you are working in the data field, because I've been there for a while, it's really valuable to show that you know how to speak the language, um, you know how to collaborate with them. Um, data analyst positions may be seen as an entry-level role, and again, CSA, I think, does a good job of nudging us along maybe like you can you can find the next next uh, step in your career um, so I would say you know in the perfect world your R&D position if it's a direct fit with what you've done for your PhD that's wonderful but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way um, mm -hmm. you can be an electrical engineer and still work for like a bio instrument company that leverages your skill sets for a different type of application so those would be some yes. No, well said. And uh, Zia, any any final thoughts on this framework? I agree with um, completely with those statements because if you, you shouldn't be stuck on the, the title, but rather how do you think you could fit in? How do you think you could contribute to the company? So um, R&D, of course, that's a bit more specific. It may or may not be an exact match, but definitely the other two regions or areas are places you can fit into. I definitely, you can do a very good job. I just want to add something here that I've been noticing more and more, especially in engineering companies. They have innovation teams. And this innovation team is actually, it is a combination of, um, I would say, you know, information data management, sales and marketing. In short, you're trying to improve the company's overall efficiency, operations. And this, of course, includes lots of both face-to-face -face work, technical work, calculations. So I've seen a great deal of engineers that are fitting into these teams and they're coming from different verticals as well, mm. uh, or different backgrounds. Another thing I can say that apart from this is don't think about if I go into data management, I'll just stay there for the rest of my career. There always, there's always an opportunity to, let's say, move around within companies. There may be an offering or there may be a, a job that 
not it's not exact data management. For example, that's where you started. You may switch to more marketing sales. You may become business development. So always keeping your perspective open and where you can fit in as an engineer or fit as a PhD. Yeah, I think about that's the best way to go about it. Um, you shouldn't just be stuck in one career path, but keep it open. Um, but yes, I agree. I think that the second and third are a bit more easier to maybe fit into R and D because that may be a bit more specific. But just keeping your eyes open and keeping an, an open, um, I think perspective is the best way to go about it. Yeah, so great, great different viewpoints and just a great example of kind of the the advice and coaching you can get from the board in the EPC group. I think we can spend some time here on the data management track, and it's kind of you can think of it as like three subcategories or, or really three key uh, pillars for this career track. The development of infrastructure and systems necessary for data collection, analysis, transformations, modeling, communication, analyze data, facilitate decision making. As engineers, you have a lot of training in systems, right? Maybe you call them methodologies, something else, but systems are extremely valuable in industry today. It's the only thing that really allows a company to scale, uh, especially from, a, I think, more of a PhD level perspective. It's the, it's the system. So we have business intelligence analyst, data scientist, engineer, operations, research analyst, energy analyst, artificial intelligence. I mean, we have, right, uh, Rubenka, why don't you just start by helping us understand how an engineer gets into this? And even though you're an engineer, it's still called data scientist. So maybe talk about that and how a lot of these, I say these fields in particular, like you said, companies don't even know what they want, right? They have often untechnical, non-technical people in charge, and uh, they're still figuring out the role. They might even ask you, what should this role be, please? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so actually, I've held like two of the roles themselves. I started off as an energy data analyst. Um, typically, an analyst is an entry-level role, but not necessarily so. While I was there, in addition, in addition to doing data analysis, I helped them with project management. I helped them with charter development. I did calls with clients. So don't be discouraged if you feel like, oh, I'm only getting offers for an analyst position. There's still a lot you can do. Uh, to move forward with it um, or leverage your experiences there. Um, the data scientist position is, you know, that's that's just everyone's dream. Well, I see that is a, okay, all right, uh, yeah. So the data scientist- I'll jump, I'll jump around as you talk about things just okay. in the more details. So go ahead, you yeah. just talk. Yeah, so I think the major difference between a data analyst and a data scientist is really the amount of advocacy you sometimes have to do. And analyst is, Typically, you do the analysis and maybe you work with the data scientist, um, analyze some of the data he or she models or uh, data he or she has typically done once, or maybe you prepare the data first before the, the scientist looks at it. A data scientist's job is twofold. One is obviously you are the technical go-to person for a new algorithm, what kind of equipment you might need, depending upon what the size of the organization is. There's also a lot of advocacy. I feel like um, a lot of companies want data science, but then they don't necessarily understand what data science can deliver, what value you can deliver. So if you're a strong communicator, um, you know, that will definitely help you. Um, you hear about all these buzzwords. Python is very hot right now. Julia, a lot of different languages come in and come and go. But the whole point is, if you have a strong basis in statistics, if you like to code, and this is very important, if you're okay with dealing with like tedious data cleaning jobs, you have you will have an analyst to help you out. But no matter if you're a data scientist or an artificial intelligence specialist, um, you know, you are going to deal with massive, massive amounts of data and 
as much as I love our field technicians, it's not always possible to provide the data in the format you want. So artificial intelligence, you know, we have made such great strides in developing sophisticated algorithms to uh, gain insights. Uh, but at the end of the day, even if you have a whole host of analysts, you may end up spending 50% to 80% of your time just cleaning the data. So I know it's this glamorous thing that's come in, uh, but it's really just, please don't run after the run after the job title itself. Really understand what it takes. And that's where networking comes in, you know, um, and analyst positions, job requirements is going to vary from a small sized company to a large sized company. If you have someone you know there, if you maintain that relationship, you can reach out to the person. I'm not, it's not something shady. You just need to get an informational interview, understand what the needs are, and then you shine in the interview because then you know what to highlight on. You know, we have, we pick up so many skills, we gain so much experience, and maybe we have a half an hour call with the hiring manager that's your screening phone call. So use that. Um, typical differences. So sometimes it's operations research analyst, data analyst. These terms can sometimes be used interchangeably, but typically an operations research analyst will deal more with like operational data as opposed to, so let's say, you know, you have a facility that does manufacturing and you have to monitor the data from those sensors. So you can think of that in like that. Operations research is an independent field. You use statistics-based methods. Um, business analyst, again, that is also used interchangeably, business intelligence analyst, sometimes with the data scientist. But essentially it is something like, do you have a year for what's going on in the industry? Do you know what your competitors are doing? So it's technically using that data to focus on business strategies or the next five-year growth plans for the company as opposed to a specific project. Um, so I know there's, we, talk, we talk about it during the training in much more detail, but that's a quick overview of the different roles and positions. No, it's perfect. And I, and I want to be able to bounce around here because what all of you should understand is it's not that the employers don't know what they want. It's just you have more technical training than they do. And they're hired like they're going to if we've seen many employers actually intimidated by PhDs on the technical front, which is why they really lean into the transferable skill front to start. And that's why you have to know that so well to start. But, you know, one company's data scientist seriously could be another company's uh, artificial intelligence analyst or scientist. Really, we, we see that. They're, they're, it's such a new term. It's only, you know, for about 10 years, it's been around, a little bit more. Uh, 2008 was the first time data scientist was used in this way in the job market. And, you know, this, what's, what's in common with a lot of these job titles? Analyst. If it's an analyst, really, it's a different type of data. Okay, this is business data, business analyst. We're helping you simplify it here, right? It, it, operations, this is internal data having to do with a, co a company's internal systems. You're analyzing that data. You're still cleaning that data. The difference between the higher level jobs and the lower level ones, like Rubenka says, is you have to be able to translate technical data into business data if you want a higher level job that pays more, like a data scientist or a higher level analyst job or a senior analyst. That's what you have to do. Your communication skills, you got to speak engineer and normal person. You got to be able to be in front of a stakeholder, right? Uh, investor, an executive and explain it. And that's a big part of the training because a lot of you cannot do that. Right. They, you have, it's working against you as an engineer, 
uh, you're, you know, they're going to perceive that, okay, a, a problem here might be communication skills. So if you can differentiate yourself by training yourself on those communication skills in this program with other engineers who have turned the corner, developed those communication skills, they speak that language, you will have an advantage. Okay, Amy, let's turn to you for research and development. So we're looking at R&D engineer, project manager, quality engineer. What are the differences between these three major categories and what might be some variations or even other job titles within them? Yeah, this is a great topic, Isaiah. So like we talked about earlier, um, I've worked as an R&D director. So um, on R&D teams, uh, typically an R&D engineer would be, you know, someone who helps um, design or develop maybe a product. Um, a lot of times in academia, you know, development cycles or research cycles are really long, uh, five years or more. Um, in industry, this is much shorter. So this person is working rapidly to develop a prototype or um, perform some sort of testing. Um, and, you know, this can be any type of engineer. And a lot of times, as we've discussed earlier, folks are, are working di from different backgrounds together, um, you know, to deliver uh, new products or test new products. Um, yes. So that covers the R&D engineer. And then, um, you know, project management is also really important. So one thing about R&D, it's, it's open-ended sometimes, right? So you're trying to get to an endpoint, but you don't know what those results are going to be when you're working in the lab or you're developing things. And so you need somebody to keep uh, the projects on track and know what the milestones are, um, you know, deliver and make sure you're on schedule, make sure budgets are, are met and things like that. So it's really important, um, those project management skills. I mean, sometimes in academia, you know, it, it takes longer and, you know, you apply for more grants and that's okay. But in industry, um, these deadlines and timelines are critical for success. Um, so keeping that on track is if you have organizational skills, mm. if good at seeing, you know, how all the pieces fit together, then this is a great area. How many of you are thinking, you know, maybe R&D engineer, type in RDE, how many of you are thinking more R&D project management, type in RDPM? We usually see a pretty decent split there. The project manager, uh, as Amy said, you know, you might work with a specific product or uh, development or project all the way from conception through to market past commercialization, right? Past, you know, that, that development stage even. Uh, whereas an R&D engineer, you might have a lot of things cycle through and you might be at a specific point in the research process. So understanding that uh, is really valuable. So Amy, quality engineer, what, what's this category? Yeah, so quality engineers are really focused on um, making sure that you're delivering um, replicable products that meet expectations. Um, so I've worked with some quality engineers before and this is really great if, you know, if you're focused on, um, if, if you like numbers and regulations, um, you know, making sure that things are on track and repeatable, um, you know, really delivering something that uh, the customer is going to be happy with and that's the same every time. Um, a lot of times this can be challenging because, you know, in research, um, you know, things change and things vary. And so part of what, what the R&D engineer challenges is to develop scalable and repeatable processes. Um, and the quality engineer is kind of the person who's going to make sure that, that, that they're successful at that. So they're involved in manufacturing. Hmm. Perfect. Now, before we go on to the sales and marketing job, which really for a PhD, it's not 
it's not cells like these antibody antibody reps or whatever the the reps for the have their portfolio in their little bags in the lab that that come around it's it's more teaching more application you know more managing a, a product post market surveillance application support market research product manager application engineer talk to us a little bit about this sector z i think a lot of engineers don't realize they can get hired into this sector helping people apply new technologies right as an application uh, engineer uh, managing a product they don't even know what that really means can you break down some of these categories from your experience what i can say is this um rz definitely i can give some some examples for this my experience has shown that there's lots of overlap between these as well so for example for myself i believe right now i'm a business intelligence analyst plus a market research and product manager or process manager so what does this mean? When you are doing your research, when you're doing, when you're finding something for your client, um, you have to use your, of course, your scientific side where you have to do the research. You have to put together your findings in a meaningful manner, but also you have to be able to, to provide insights that will help them improve their business. So what I can say about one thing that I learned very quickly is they're not very interested in looking at all your fancy um you know, 10 pages references or anything. They want very simple things and they want to see insights from you. So for example, from my side, product manager is a bit more, I think, specific, but market research analysts, they want to see some specifics. What do I have to do to improve my, my efficiency? Go and use this software. They want to see very clean cut, simple, and uh, say actionable items at the, end of, at the end of the day. So when you do this, you have to do this, of course, both as a scientist, as a PhD, and also you have to have your, your let's say, communication skills and tell them what it will benefit them, how they will benefit their company, how they will be moving forward with these. So when you see those type of um, subjects, not only about selling something, but it's actually you're selling your information, you're combining your information, your analyses, your your intelligence all together as one and providing them a solution. So don't think of it only as you are selling something, but you're actually selling your information. You're trying to help them improve themselves um, in a much more technical fashion. So that's what I can say. And also one other thing I can say, these are pretty much overlapping. What, what I mean by that is you'll see something in market research that also fits into other things as well. Mm. Um, so you're wearing several hats at the same time. Um, so sometimes you may be in a, let's say position of market research analyst, but actually doing more than one thing there. Um, so yes, but I, what I can say overall, long story short, um, just keep your perspective very broad and also think that you can, you can fit into many different roles and winning different hats as well, just using your, your yeah. research skills. And especially as at smaller companies, like uh, everyone here has brought up, you're going to wear different hats and uh, you know, it can be, you're going to be a business intelligence analyst who's, you know, really also a market research analyst, uh, depending on the size of the company. Uh, you know, I want to, who, I'd love to hear from uh, both Amy and Rubenka about this job title. This is a very popular one for engineers, product manager. People get confused about what it means to manage a product, right? Like you can work at Google and literally be the product manager of like a feature of a feature, like of, of Gmail's ability to uh, filter. You can be the product manager of that. Uh, Rebecca, you have anything to add to that? And then Amy, will go to you. Yeah, so I've actually had worked with both project and product managers for a specific project. So maybe I can provide a little bit of an insight. Um, so right. I um, in a production environment where they were building smart meter algorithms 
The product manager was mostly in charge of, as you would imagine, the product itself. So he would be in touch with the clients directly. He would be in touch with our subcontractors, trying to make sure that the pipeline in itself is stable, that there's no supply chain issue, that we are able to deliver our final product on time in an accurate manner. Um, that's the product manager's job, whereas a project manager's job was more about managing the project. Um, so let's say in a hypothetical situation, if there is an argument between two team members, obviously the team members are adults and they're expected to solve it themselves. But <laughs> she can step in, she can step in, or she can also provide uh, with goal setting for a specific member of the project. Um, so I feel like it, these both these positions have some overlapping skills, but they are distinct. They are not the same. Hmm. Well said. Amy, final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I envision product managers as people who are removing uh, roadblocks from the process of getting the product into the hands of the consumer or the end customer. Um, and so they're behind the scenes making sure that everyone is aligned, um, you know, it's not just about, like Rubenka said, the the project itself, but um, you know, delivering, making sure regulatory requirements are complete, making sure product gets manufactured correctly, um, making sure that it's actually has product market fit, and mm -hmm. uh, the folks who are marketing it, um, you know, know what who who wants the product, who needs the product, um, and so working together across the team to make sure that the the launch or um, the continued manufacturing of a product is successful. Absolutely. Thank you again for being on the radio show and for providing your insights. This takes us to the end of this show. You can learn about this program and all of our programs at CheekyScientist.com. If you are new to your job search, you don't know which position is right for you, you can go to PhDsGetHired.com. That's plural, PhDs gethired.com to learn more about our flagship program, the Cheeky Scientist Association that has helped thousands of PhDs around the world get hired. It'll train you on the basics of your job search and help you find the right position for you. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Isaiah Henkel, the founder of Cheeky Scientist and the creator of the Cheeky Scientist Association. I wanted to quickly tell you that memberships into the association are available to PhDs listening to Cheeky Scientist Radio by using the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com, PhDs. G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll down to the orange membership button and click on it, then enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. That's CheekyRadio, C-H-E-E-K-Y-R-A-D-I-O. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Are you worried about the rapidly shrinking job market? Like me, have you been seeing more and more articles on universities shutting down their research labs, furloughing employees, cutting postdocs and TAs, and even withdrawing PhD student funding? If so, it might be wise to start taking steps to protect your PhD career. 
You've worked very hard and very intelligently for years to establish yourself, but likely you have not reached your full career potential yet. Perhaps you're not even getting respect and you're not getting the rewards that you deserve. The good news is you can get into an industry career where you can get paid well for doing meaningful work. All you need is the right knowledge and the right network. The Cheeky Scientist Association gives you lifetime access to the world's number one PhD-only job search training platform with multiple courses and the PhD-only job referral network of over 10,000-plus industry PhDs. Now is your chance to become a lifetime member for 20% off of the association. Just use the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com. P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll to the orange membership button, and click on it, then enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. No recurring monthly fees, no recurring annual fees, Nobody else offers this. PhdsGetHired.com. Use the coupon code CheekyRadio. Remember your value as a PhD, and remember that knowledge is power, and your network is your net worth. Oh, 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 oh.